While our children are leaving, I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and open to uh, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the ancient church of Ephesus. This is now the second message in a series through these amazing chapters, which I have come to experience and understand and know as an amazing, amazing vision of, of uh, God's immeasurable plan of redemption. It's like standing on a high-rise building and being shown the most amazing, wonderful, awe-inspiring, praise-producing work that heaven or earth could ever imagine. And this morning, I want to, um, in introduction and uh, before we actually begin this message, to read two of the prayers that Paul weaves into these three chapters. And I find these prayers immensely encouraging because as brilliant as the Apostle Paul was and as descriptive as he is and deep as, as he writes, he still knows that if God does not bring these words to life, then they won't do anything. And so he weaves these prayers, which tells us that he depended upon God to take these amazing descriptions and bring them home into the human heart, which is what I'm going to read for you now. I'm going to weave together two prayers, one in chapter one and one at the end of chapter three. And I want you to just sense the enormity of what he prays for. This is what he prays, beginning in verse 15 of chapter one. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your love or for, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's his praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's prayer one. And then he prays again, and you'll notice similarities in verse 14 of chapter three. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height, length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Who prays like that? It's just an immense prayer, essentially, for God's people to get what he wrote in these chapters. So I want to pray in that spirit, and I find that encouraging because no matter what I say this morning, or the Spirit says through me, it's not going to do anything unless God the Father brings it home. So I want to pray in the spirit of Paul. Father, I, I ask for exactly what he asked for, that you would give to your people, grant to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of who you are. As we know that there is a knowledge that fills the mind, but there's a deep knowledge that penetrates the heart, and that's what we pray for. 
We pray that you would enlighten our eyes that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we might know the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and that we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in those who believe, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and sat him at the right hand of you, our Father. Father, we just want to ask that you would, um, in these moments, that you would speak. Um, You bear the burden. You're the only one who can of this message um, and also work in our ears to hear and bring deeper levels of understanding of who you are and what you have done that we might be filled with praise and adoration and joy and celebration of what you have done and who you are forever and ever to us. So please, just we beg of you in the name of Jesus, feed us this morning. We're hungry for your word and your truth And by it, I pray that you would set our hearts free in the truth of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I love these chapters. Um, There's a lot of talk these days in in Christian circles and Christian education on the importance of having a a world view. And I think it's a justified emphasis. Uh, A world view is is what its name suggests. It's, It's how you view the world. And everybody on planet Earth, whether they're religious or not religious, has some form of worldview. A worldview consists of certain beliefs as to what is real in the world around us. And as I said, you don't have to be a religious person to have a a worldview. Um, Everybody believes certain things about reality. Whether it's true or not is a different different, uh, story. And that's not to say that every worldview is consistent. It's not to say that every worldview is well thought out. And it's not to say that people are even consciously aware of what their worldview is. But people operate and live on, a certain, on certain assumptions about life. And in those assumptions, they live. Uh, for example, one of the worldviews that it's being uh, impressed upon younger people is the belief that Ultimate reality is a product of an explosion that happened in the universe um, when some infinitesimal small particle burst. Where that came from, nobody knows, which means it's an assumption of faith. Every worldview is based on assumptions of faith. And out of that worldview, it's believed that essentially life has no ultimate rhyme, reason, purpose, or future. Um, But on that worldview as to where we come from, basically nowhere, it's just a big explosion. Um, people form their views of what human life is, their values, um, their views of ethics, however twisted or, or uh, mistaken they are. But that's one worldview. We might call it the godless worldview that is being imposed upon, upon our, our children. It is a very dark and ultimately fatalistic worldview. All the religions of the world also have their view of reality, and they're different. They're not the same, regardless of what other people say. If you were to have a Hindu and a a Muslim and a Christian in here who truly believe their writings and books, they would not agree on the substance of, of reality whatsoever. Take, for example, some of the Eastern forms of religion which believe that um, the ultimate aim of human existence is to escape both the material world and individual identity. So that the ultimate aim of the, of the person, of a human, is to become nothing or to become part of this impersonal thing. You might call it a mind or a being, but I think that implies personality. Now, that sounds a bit trendy or fashionable in a Tom Cruise sort of way, but um, personally, I find that 
completely unattractive. The idea that what we're aiming at is the loss of individual identity and escape from material reality, to me, means ultimately you get nothing because you're not there to experience it because all individuality has been lost. It's like dreaming of heaven being a huge bowl of ice cream, and by the time you get there, you have no taste buds. Like, what's the point? Now, my point is not to, to critique worldviews. It's, it's simply to say that everybody has one, and all of them proceed on the assumption of certain aspects of faith and belief that you can't prove, including Christianity. Now, for my part, I find, as I have um, surveyed life and different belief systems, I find the worldview of the Christian faith to be unimaginably beautiful and wonderful and glorious. Because it begins with God overflowing in love, and it ends with God. That the story of the Christian worldview begins with, with not with a big bang, but with God saying, personally, let there be light. And rather than the universe dissolving into some kind of thing, Christianity believes in the resurrection and the restoration of the material universe, including our bodies. And that rather than being absorbed in some kind of a mindless force, at the end of time, we believe in a face-to-face -face personal, an individual as well as communal encounter with God, which doesn't dissolve our individual self, but actually fulfills it and gives it ultimate and glorious meaning. Now, that is, that is a little bit of the, of the worldview of, of Christianity, which is filled with such amazing and heartfelt images of grooms and brides, of fathers and sons and daughters. It's so full of life and so full of love. I find it eminently attractive and true. And I believe these three chapters basically lay that out as, as this immeasurable work of creation redemption. It is a gift that has no definable edges that you push as far in any direction and you just don't come to the end of it, which is why he prays that they might know, which is somewhat of a hyperbole, um, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this amazing love-filled plan, which surpasses knowledge. Last week, we, we started on this plan um, to kind of show this is the Christian worldview as to what God has done. And we have we laid out five basic um, truths to kind of provide foundation that the, the plan of redemption is centered on the Son. The plan of redemption is eternal in its origin. The plan of, the, of redemption is certain. The plan of, the, uh, of God of redemption is immeasurable. And ultimately, it produces praise, heartfelt praise in God's people. And now we come to specifics of this plan. And the first of the specifics has to do with the architect and the author of this plan, namely, the Father. And that's where I want to spend my focus. But before I do that, I, I want to kind of give you a sense of where I'm headed and how I'm approaching these series, because I think some may think that I'm going to go verse by verse through one, then chapter two, and then chapter three, which I'm not going to do. As I've meditated on these three chapters, this is for those of you who do Bible study, this is how I conceive of it. As we have in verses 3 through 14, a rather compressed, highly compressed outline, or we might call it an opening overture, for those who are musical, of the rest of what he's going to say. 
and in it contains everything that is then elaborated on in the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. So we have in this condensed uh, section of verses 3 through 14, and by the way, if I could encourage you to memorize one portion of Scripture which will give you a well-rounded understanding of the function and role of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, of the nature of redemption, uh, both past, eternal past, and eternal future, this would be it. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. But here you have this condensed outline, redemption plan, redemption accomplished, and redemption uh, future or our inheritance. And then it's elaborated on in the chapters that follow. So he talks about the future in the form of a prayer in 15 through 23. He talks more deeply about what took place in redemption in chapter 2, 1 through 22. A short digression where Paul talks about his plan in this great unfolding work of redemption. And then um, the final prayer, which he prays that the people would comprehend what he's just said. So we're going to basically go through or look at that compressed outline and then just allow the rest of the chapters to fill in um, what it says. So that's the launch point from here on out, as I will always start in chapter 1, 3 through 14 in some way, shape, or form and bring the rest of it into it. As I said, the focus of this particular one is on the author and on the master designer of this great immeasurable plan of redemption, namely the Father. Now, I have found this to be, this truth about the, the fatherhood of God in these chapters to be both refreshing and wonderful. Because in our emphasis on Jesus as the center of redemption, which is the center of redemption, and I don't think could ever be overemphasized, oftentimes what is eclipsed or de-emphasized is the Father's role in this amazing, immeasurable plan. And I believe that Paul would want us to see that everything that happens in redemption and everything that happens in this great thing called salvation ultimately is the hand of the Father at work. So my, my hope and my aim is that in looking at what we're going to look at this morning, that your view, like Paul's, would be exalted as to how amazing your Father is. I mean, what a precious word by itself, Father. Now, I know that for some people who either had a no father in the home the first thought that comes into your mind of a father is absent. Or maybe you had a, a father who wasn't good, a verbally or otherwise abusive. And so your image of a father is a very distorted one. Others of us have good fathers, yet flawed fathers. The Bible, the New Testament, when it speaks of father, it is always intimate, personal, powerful, and awesome. And I'm hoping that regardless of what your experience is, you'll come to the end and go, I am so glad that God has revealed himself to me in a way that I can call and trust and relate to him as a father. You'll notice, as I said, here's this compressed little section of verses. He begins this overture with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For him, the whole concept of this immeasurable redemption begins with a, a word of worship, of blessing the Father for what he has done, blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I want to give you three reasons from this section, 
as to why he feels so compelled to bless the father who has enacted acted this, this great, great plan. And the first reason has to do with the fact that our father, Heavenly Father, is the initiator of redemption. That is, he is the architect, he is the author, ultimately. It happened because he determined it would happen. And that comes to light in a number of words, like the word chosen, or the word predestined, or working all things together for the counsel of his will. So verse 4, we read that even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, so that's the Father who chose us, or that in love he, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons. Or verses 11 and 12, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of the Father's will. Or even in terms of what we do, that we see ourselves and Paul sees us as the Father's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God the Father has prepared in advance for us to do. So these verses tell us that ultimately this amazing, immeasurable plan of deliverance, salvation, and rescue of us from sin ultimately was architected, authored, and initiated by our and your Father. Now let me put a little meat on those dry theological bones. <laughs> Sometimes we just need analogies to, to get it into the human spectrum. A um, short time ago, Dan Overby and I watched a movie, and I hope I'm not going to embarrass him by saying that I watched this movie with him. Um, it was the movie Taken. Now it's not a movie for kids, so don't go home and rent it and let your two-year-olds watch it. Now, it's PG-13, and it's, it's violent in some places. But this movie Taken, uh, the main star is played by Liam Neeson. And um, he's kind of this ex-CIA, black ops kind of person who's now retired. And unwillingly and unreluctantly, or unreluctantly, um, he is persuaded to let his 16-year-old daughter go to France, unaccompanied with her friend by his ex-wife. So here's this, this father who's reluctant to send his daughter, 16-year-old daughter, with her friend to France. Well, as the story goes, when she gets to France, she's abducted by some very bad people who want to sell her and other girls like her into a particular type of slavery, which I think you could probably imagine what that is. There's a father in the United States, and he ends up on the phone with a kidnapper, a doctor, who's going to sell his daughter into slavery. And there's this one part in the movie where Liam Neeson is on the phone with the kidnapper, and he says the words, and they're just, I mean, to any father, you just feel the fullness of what he says. He says, I don't know who you are, but if you don't let my daughter go, I will find you, and I will kill you. Now, that last part sounds violent. But any father who watches that movie feels exactly what he says. If that was my alley in France... And I was on the phone. Of course, I'm not ex-Black Ops, so I can't really, you know, I don't have all this stuff. <laughs> I, I was wishing I was, if that was the case. I'd, I'd be saying the same thing. Listen, I, I, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to hunt you down. And if I find you, and if I can, I will kill you. <laughs> That's how you feel. It, it's one of those movies, probably not really good for a mom, but for a dad, you just sympathize with, with that, that desire to recover the lost 
daughter. Now, if you want a child's version, you can watch Finding Nemo. That <laughs> works better. It likes the sharks and so the rest of the movie, and by the way, if you haven't seen it, it's older. If I spoiled it for you, that's your fault. You should have seen it a long time ago. But he, the rest of the movie is about him flying over to France and taking on bad guys. One at a time, at one point, he blows up a whole building. And then he avoids these corrupt cops that are chasing him. And, and by the time you get to the end of the movie, he's on a boat. He's limping. He's bleeding. And he finally bursts into the door, and he saves his daughter. And she looks, and she says, you came for me. That was my favorite part in the movie. You came for me. That is a father taking the initiative to rescue and save the object of his love. Now, so when it says here that, that or when I say that the father initiated this plan, fill that out a little bit and recognize that he came for you. I mean, in a similar way, we were abducted in the beginning, deceived, and through our own complicit choice, willingly went along with it and turned on our Father. But God made a determined decision that I will rescue you. And that's what the plan is about, is a Father rescuing at any cost, his children. Now, I'll come fill that out a little bit more in a second, but I just want you to know that, that, that when it says here that, you know, our Father is the one who initiated redemption, he came for you. That's why I think Paul says, blessed be the God and Father. The whole thing was initiated by him. And we get the privilege of calling and relating and trusting in him as our father. Another reason why I think Paul begins this way, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because our father is the sovereign worker of redemption. This is very important because sometimes I think Christians, again, in our emphasis on Jesus, the father kind of goes into the background, which was not Paul's theology anywhere. He always saw the work of Christ as a work of the Father. And so did John. That we can easily, if we lose the Father in the background, we easily think he's up there distant, disconnected, maybe sitting on a big divine couch with a remote in his hand and watching a golf game. And that Jesus does all the dirty work. When in fact, that's not the case. Case in point, and I just want to draw your attention to this, and I'm, I'm hoping that by the time I get to read a couple things, that you'll sense it. That the Father is intimately, consistently, intensely involved in everything that happens. For example, Jesus is not the subject of any Greek verb in these three chapters until chapter 2, verse 14 where it says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. It's the first time he's the subject of the action. Everything before that is the action of the Father. So let me just read to you, and I've supplemented the word Father where there's a pronoun his that relates to the Father, and I just want you to get a sense 
of how involved your father is in your salvation. Obviously, there's the opening blessing that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, verse 3. The father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, verse 4. In love, the father predestined us for adoption as sons, verse 5. According to the father's will, verse 5. To the praise of the father's grace, verse 6. The father has blessed us in the beloved, verse 6. We have redemption according to the riches of the Father's grace, verse 7, which, is the, uh, which the Father has lavished on us, verse 8, which the Father made known to us, verse 9, according to the Father's purpose, verse 9, which the Father set forth in Christ, verse 9. It's the Father who works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 12, to the praise of the Father's glory, verse 14. Paul prays that the Father will grant a spirit of wisdom and revelation, verse 17. Paul prays that we might know the hope that the Father has called us to, verse 18, that we might know the riches of the Father's glorious inheritance among the saints, verse 18, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of the Father's power toward us, verse 19, according to the working of the Father's great might, verse 19, um, that the Father worked in Christ, verse 20, when the Father raised him from the dead, verse 20, and when the Father seated him at his right hand, verse 20, the Father put all things under his feet, and the Father gave him his head over all things to the church, verse 22, that's only the first chapter. So I continue. Chapter 2, the Father, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which the Father has loved us, verse 4. The Father made us alive together with Christ, verse 5. The Father raised us up with him, verse 5. The Father seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, verse 6. And by the way, there is another person who sits in the presence of God besides Jesus, and that's all of us who are in him, which is a mind-blowing concept. So that in the coming ages, the immeasurable riches of the Father's grace may be shown, verse 7. We are the Father's workmanship, verse 9. The Father has prepared works for us to do ahead of time, verse 10. We are made members of our Father's household, verse 19. And through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, in one spirit have access to the one Father. And I could go on and on and on and on. And the point is simply this, that that he is not distant, disconnected, or aloof somewhere and letting his son do all the stuff, but actually the father is actively, consistently, constantly, and personally, intimately involved in his work of redemption. And remembering that when Christ exercises power, it's the father's power he exercises. When Christ is given authority, it's the father's authority that's given to him. That's why it says that he, the father, put all things under his feet. The authority that Jesus wields is a conferred authority. So that everything he's seen is doing is the work of his father. So what I, let me image. So what we must understand is it is the father's mighty hand reaching through the sun down into the depths or the dregs of human sin and despair and raising us up with Christ and setting us at his right hand. It's his strong work for which Paul says, blessed be the God and Father who did this. And it fits, doesn't it? I mean, it's amazing to me how God has, has grafted into human experience analogies by which he would one day reveal himself, namely that of a father to a child. And one of the images of a father, that I, a healthy father, is that he is someone who, who cares, protects and serves the ones he loves and works on their behalf. And that's exactly how the father's seen here. 
I mean, I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, but I think, generally speaking, the father is usually the strongest in the household, at least before he hits the age of 50. 60? 70? I'll just can't wait till the day my son can beat me. But that's kind of the image is the father is the strong one. And I know that doesn't fit, sit well in a rather feministic society. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, when I was a kid and I was threatened, it wasn't my mom that I wanted there. I wanted her there when I was wounded. <laughs> Mommy, guys on the battlefield, you know, wounded, that want their moms. But no, I, I wanted my dad there because one of, the, one of the characteristics of a father, which is a reflection of our heavenly father, is that one that's strong, comes to your aid. And I think that's how he's viewed. I, I remember as a, as a kid, the one and only time I'd ever had somebody pull a knife on me. And I don't know how old I was, but I had a really sweet Schwinn, green Schwinn bicycle with a banana seat. Remember those? Banana seat. You could fit like 15 people on that thing. <laughs> the little flag and the cards and the wheels anyway. And uh, this kid, kid named Charlie, kid named Charlie pulled out his little pocket knife and, and proceeded to cut my banana seat. And Yeah. And I don't think he would ever really have hurt me, but he, he definitely liked to brandish it. And um, I don't know how I managed, but he put a small cut on my hand. And I took my green Schwinn with the banana seat with a cut on it, and I drove it home. And I didn't go see my mom, because at that point I wasn't really wounded. I was threatened. And I remember going to my dad, and I told him what had happened. Now, if he was a poor father, he would have said, well, suck it up, son. That's the way the world is. But that's not what he did. He immediately got up out of his seat. And I could tell there was fire in his eyes. He walked out the door. He knew who this kid Charlie's parents were. He marched down. He went to the front door. And he had it out with that dad. Because he was my father. Symbol of strength. Authority. The one who takes care of his children. And that is... That's the image that I get when I see a father who is doing everything from choosing to redeeming to racing up and to know that he didn't just work back then but he is every bit involved in your life right here and right now with you wherever you go the father is with you and working in your life and to be able to trust him and to know that he is a father above all fathers and more real than any human father can ever be. And to relate to him that way. To trust him that way and to call out to him that way. I and mean, that's why Paul's praying to the father because he knows ultimately he's on the seat of the throne and he makes stuff happen. So he's praying to him. So he, he understands that in this grand, immeasurable Without definable edges thing called redemption, he knows ultimately it's initiated by the Father and he's working it out. It's the Father who's working it out. He is on the throne. He is the chief ultimate of all things. The question we might ask now leading to the third thing is this, is why? So why would the Father initiate a plan 
to come and rescue and deliver people like you and people like me. Now, let me just make it personal. Ask myself, why would God do that for me? I mean, I'm not as self-aware as I could be, and I'm sure through the rest of my life I'll become more self-aware of just how messed up I am, but at least I know I'm broken by the grace of God. I know that sometimes I act selfishly with my wife. Sometimes I act in self-centered ways in my relationships with other people. Sometimes I can be manipulative. I know I'm broken. I know he's healing me, but I know that I'm broken. So why would he come all that way and rescue the likes of me? Dead in my trespasses and sins. And I think the simple answer is, I'm perhaps best put in, the line of a David Crowder song. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And that comes screaming through, all the way through this. In love, verse 5, he predestined us. That he has forgiven our trespasses according to the riches of his mercy. And mercy and grace, by the way, are two words that just define the nature of God's love for sinners. Grace and mercy, which makes the amazing part about God's love, God, not us. That he chose to love in grace and mercy fallen people. But you get the sense all the way through this that this redemption is all about the amazing, immeasurable love of a father for fallen children, his kids. So you have chapter 2, which is one of the best ones where after talking about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, being carried away by our, 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 our desires of our mind and flesh, uh, people who were by nature objects of his anger and wrath, it says, but God being rich in mercy, and rich understates it, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when, temporal word, we were dead in trespasses. Like he loved us. That's why he did it. Ultimately, you go all the way back, and this is similar to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that ultimately the plan of, 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 of redemption was birthed out of God's love, which surpasses knowledge. He loves his kids that much. I can picture a phone call that the father makes in heaven. And this is distorted. But he calls the direct line to hell. And the devil picks up. And the father says, I know who you are. And I will find you. And I will destroy you. No, you know, let's back up. I know who you are. And I'm going to send my son. And he's going to destroy you. And he's going to free my kids. The ones that you have enslaved. Slam the receiver down. Keeping in mind, of course, that the devil can't even burp without the father's permission. Just, father says, those are my kids, son. I want you to bring them home. Bring them home to me. And I will do it at any expense. And along the way, there's an amazing casualty. And Jesus dies in an effort to save us. And through that death, he does save us. 
But that is the outworking of a love of a father to bring home his kids. And if there's anything that, that these chapters tell us is that the extent and the depth and the height of God's love cannot be measured because you know what? He loves you. He's come from eternity for you. And he has destroyed the enemy. And he's going to bring you home. And not only does he love you, but he desires to be loved in return. One of my favorite verses in chapter 2 is verse 18, where it says that through Christ, we both Jews and Gentiles in the Spirit have access to the Father. This is relational. Father reunited with sons and daughters. That's the whole purpose Jesus came and what the Spirit is doing. And not just in an abstract way, but to know him. And to approach and to relate to him boldly and with confidence, knowing he is and forever will be our Father. Constantly preserving and protecting and giving life. Even in the moments of death, his love will carry us through because of what he's done through the Son. It's the most, I think, important thing in all of life. The most transforming thing in all of life is simply to come to grips with the fact that that's the love that I can never fully understand, but it's so amazing, it's better than life. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago if I only had a couple words left to say to this church family, what would they be? I don't know. They were trying to get me to summarize exactly what my heart would be, I suppose. And I said, you know, I think I'd say something like this, that I just want God's people to know the immensity of his love in a way that they can not only understand, but they can be secure in. And that the Father has taken care of everything. And to live in the security, safety, and freedom of that truth. That would be what I would want to say. And that is such an amazing, I know that's like beating a drum over and over again, because to me, that's the drum the Bible beats. The love of a father for his children that went the distance and paid their price. That's a pretty amazing worldview. It's pretty attractive father taking the initiative at the death of his own son to rescue you and I to bring him home and seat us at the right hand of his throne the question is this the appeal is do you trust it I mean that's kind of the bottom line so I I wonder if there are things in your life that that, um, are obstacles to you actually embracing and knowing, okay, I, I, I believe this and I'm going to surrender to this belief. Is it a doubt? Is it a pain, a disappointment, an injury, a betrayal? What is it that right now that keeps you from fully embracing and standing in the fullness of the light of the Father's love, which is so amazing and life transforming? Whatever that thing is, can you just take a few moments and ask the question, um, what is it that keeps you from embracing fully the, the love of the Father for you and standing in his light? What, what is it? And then just confess it to the Lord. Say, Lord, help me to, to once again know your love for me and to stand in the security, safety, and strength of what you have done. Because I know that he wants you to know, to know his love for you. So just spend like, 
30 seconds here, just whatever it is, and just offer it up to him and ask him if he would, he would remove those obstacles to his love. And then I'll pray for us.